Hey, it's Brian. Big announcement, everybody. Work in Sports is sponsoring the first ever Job Recovery Summit as part of Hashtag Sports Virtual Conference. We are so excited to be partnering with Hashtag Sports on this incredibly important initiative. Get this. Registration is free. Yes, free. There is no excuse for you not to attend. I want you all there. I will be hosting multiple panels and I'm bringing together an all-star group, some of your favorite podcast guests of all time. I've got confirmations from John Ferguson, VP of People and Culture for Monumental Sports and Entertainment, Callie Franklin, who, when I interviewed her, was the VP of Human Resources at NYCFC, but now she's moved to Overtime Elite, so we're going to have some really cool conversations there. Joan Lynch will be joining us, the Chief Content Officer from Working Nation, It's going to be amazing. The Job Recovery Summit takes place live June 17th, 1230 to 3.30. And like I said, I've got more people coming. Those are just the confirmations I have so far. The entire lineup of events and sessions for the Hashtag Sports Virtual Conference, which is three days, looks amazing. But the most important part is that you attend the Job Recovery Summit. So get in for that. Register today at hashtagsports.com slash virtual. Or you can also go to the events tab at hashtagsports.com, click on the Job Recovery Summit, and register. And don't forget to mention you heard all about it on the Work in Sports podcast. All right, let's start the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition, liftoff. Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning at WorkInSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. Over the last year, I, like many others, have spent time contemplating my own preconceived notions and unconscious biases that exhibit themselves in every walk of my life. We all have them. It's part of the human condition. But where do they come from, and why are they allowed to stay? This question has perplexed me as I've tried to open up my lens and question myself every time an instinctive thought comes into my psyche. While the social justice issues of 2020 may have sparked my internal curiosity, it would be naive to think bias only comes into issues of race, gender, and culture. When you really pay attention to it, and the way your mind processes information, unconscious bias and preconceived determinations are everywhere. I did some digging. And studies indicate that many children by five years of age have entrenched stereotypes about various social groups. The world we are exposed to forms our foundational beliefs and then becomes a tool to make snap judgments and conclusions on site. Kind of spooky, right? It's like our brain is hardwired by societal influence. We watch Saturday morning cartoons If you don't see any black or Asian children, okay, you start to assume white people hold more important statuses. Got it. If we don't see any women in positions of power, okay, men are more powerful. Got it. But it can be even simpler and more pervasive than race and gender. We see a hard-charging, demanding CEO on TV and start to lump information together. Okay, CEOs are smart but mean and cutthroat. Got it. We see a police officer who's taken a bribe. Okay, police officers... They always have their hand out. Got it. Can't be trusted. Got it. We see salespeople represented in pop culture as the in-your-face, bye-bye-bye, and we think, okay, that's not me. Got it. Our belief structures become formed, not out of some nefarious agenda, but because we as children are trying to make sense out of our world, and the easiest way to do that is draw conclusions from what we see and hear. 
As children, we have no choice. We lack the cognitive ability to evaluate the validity of our assumptions. As adults, we do, if we pay attention to their existence. I'll use a personal example. A couple weeks back, I had on Dr. Bill Sutton, one of the absolute best people in our industry. After our interview was complete, we chatted for a little bit, and he suggested today's guest, Scott O'Neill, CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. He said, Scott's a guy you want to talk to, and I would like to connect you with him. My instantaneous reaction was, hell yeah. But my subconscious notion was, he's the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. He's going to be tough. He's not going to really have time to do this. I'm going to get canned answers that aren't authentic. He's not going to be all that interested in talking to me. And this may very well sound better in theory than in practice. That's what ran through my head immediately. That's my preconceived notion. Within a day, the session was booked. Dr. Sutton came through in spades. Scott and his team were kind, gracious, courteous, attentive. He sent me over a copy of his new book, Be Where Your Feet Are, Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and Thriving. And I was blown away. I really like meditation, being intentional, paying attention to your mind and the energy you throw off to others around you. But to learn Scott... This Harvard-educated, top-of-class, wildly successful guy was contemplating true happiness alongside me. I read his book from beginning to end and tried to strip away some of those preconceived notions that I had. And there it is. Preconceived notions, drawing unfair conclusions about people or events before you even know a damn thing. It's all I've been able to think about ever since I concluded the interview with Scott. I've read his book. It's insightful. It's so introspective, it's vulnerable, it's authentic, and I'm not just saying this. I'm not selling books for Scott. It impacted me, and it's so interesting to think of the position he holds, the job that he does, and the perspective that he has. But I'll let you hear it from him. Here's Scott O'Neill, CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's great to meet you, and it's great to have you here. Brian, it's wonderful to be here. Um, your podcast is fantastic. The mission to help people get into sports is inspiring to me and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, well, I thank you for saying that. It's something we take a lot of pride in to try to help young people getting into the industry, people who are changing in their career, trying to give them advice that matters, you know, because I've been in the industry for a long time. You've been in the industry for a long time. There's bad advice out there. There's good advice out there. And if we can give them some clarity in that area, I think it's important. And I, and I think you've got a lot of that. So obviously your career, there's so much we can talk about in terms of the sports industry and everything happening in it right now, it's a tumultuous and exciting time both. But I want to dive into your book first, because I think this is really important. I think it's a, a conversation we have a lot of fun and depth in. In our house, we have a, a family mission statement that's posted right by the door so that when the kids leave, they see it. And it's like this message we try to repeat with them. And one of the things we say in there is to be present. And it struck me that your book, Be Where Your Feet Are, Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and Thriving, obviously leans into this premise. Why was this concept fundamental to the stories that you wanted to share and this process of writing a book? Sure. Well, we, we have a, a sign up in our house and it's written quite a bit. Um, and it's kind of our three family rules. So I'll start there and I'll move to my why I think being present is so good. We, we have a core tenet of rooting for each other in our house that I think is critically important both at work and at home. And I think, I think that'll be a common theme you'll hear from me is I, I try to be the same person at work as I, as I am at home, as I am in church, as I am in the community. And, um, and sometimes that works really well, and sometimes that gets a little complicated. Um, 
And then we talked about res- in our house, root for each other, respect and grace, and work unreasonably hard. And and for us, those are the three kind of anchoring principles that we use as, with our family. Um, but when you leave our house, uh, if you look up just a hair, um, you'll see API, kind of ins- assume positive intent. You know, is, is another kind of message. And if you get the if you're you're tortured with a tour of our house, you'll find signs and messages <laughs> all throughout the house, all, all of things that are that are important. Um, but but being where your feet are, being wholly present, is I, I think for me that that's it's helped um, define who I am and where I am, and help solve kind of the question I've been asked for the last 25 years, which is, you know, how do you find balance? How do you truly find work-life balance? And um, as I've gotten older, I've, I've truly appreciated the myth in that question because I don't think it's uh, the right question to ask. I think the right question is, is how can we spend more time being wholly present and being where our feet are? Because that's what truly matters because life is, is messy. Um, we have our schedules are insane. And, um, and if you want to be really successful, I'd love for you to point me out to one person who doesn't work unreasonably hard. Uh, however you might define success. Um, at home, I mean, I have three daughters. Our house in the morning is like a tornado. And we were like, <laughs> I, you know, my wife and I kind of give the, like, the wink and the nod, the NCAA tournament, let's survive in advance and move on. <laughs> and let's, let, let's, let's just, let's get them going. You know, <clears throat> um, pre-COVID, it was just like, we just had to get them in the car and get them out the house. Um, during COVID, that's a whole nother adventure. Um, and then post-COVID, we're trying to figure out, you know, how we define the new norm. But that time in the morning is not, it's, it's literally not productive. And then I'm at work, they're in school, then they have sports, they've got boyfriends, we don't have to talk about that, I hope. And yeah. then, you know, and then they have homework, and then I'm trying to figure out where my impact time is. Um, and I work, I'm working 150 nights a year, I'm out and about till late at night. And so, so the key for me is when I get those 45 minutes, and that's what we're talking about during the week, 45 minutes. How do you want to spend it? Do you want to flip on another episode rerun of The Office? Do you want to be checking your emails or your texts? Or do you want to shut it down and be wholly present and have a real conversation? And and if you're trying this at home and you have kids at home, the first thing, the first day, you're going to consider either me or you an entire, like a complete failure, right? Because you're going to ask your teenager, so how was school? Good. What'd you learn? Nothing. So um, what are you working on? Not much. No, it doesn't matter. And so, and what we learn is over time, when we when we go and spend our time intentionally, and then we learn that we are going to have to actually use some prompts and ask open-ended questions, and engage in real dialogue. And and what you find is once they break through, or at least I've found once they have broken through, and we can have real discussions. I've been blown away by even my 14-year-old. She has a really unique perspective on on the world. And we can learn a lot from these these teens. Um, now, listen, they get their information from TikTok, and you know, so it's, it's not always based in truth or fact, or even remotely so. Um, but they have a real strong voice, and I think as parents, it's kind of incumbent upon us to figure out like how we can be wholly present and learn it. And it's the same way at work. Um, you know, we're all running, we're overscheduled. Um, we very rarely audit our schedules to figure out if we're spending our inf- our our time in the right places on the right things. And we just go, and we go, and we go, and we go. And, um, and what I found over time, I just got a, a great note on LinkedIn 
from a young woman. I, I, I won't want to use her name because she didn't give me permission to do it, but she said, hey, I just wanted to reach out to you three years ago. You said you were passing in the hallway and you said, now you have a gear. That is some gear. And now I don't remember the, the conversation. I don't remember mm-hmm. the occurrence. But for her, she said, hey, that comment coming from you gave me the confidence and she went on to do some extraordinary things which she's doing now. Now I, I don't I don't want to take I don't take any credit. She's a you know, I, I don't even know her well enough to even pretend to take credit. But I wonder if that's not a message for all of us to be a little more kind of locked in where we are and a little more focused on the impact we can have by saying the things uh, that we have the opportunity to say to the people that that need it most. I love that concept. I think sometimes we don't always realize the power we have in our voice. And it sounds like when you use that in the way that you did and you see that impact, it kind of brings it all full circle, which is so powerful. So I think one of the things is I kind of went through your book and I kind of thought in my own sense of, you know, present and where I struggle is that sometimes I think when I'm lacking in confidence, maybe I'm like falling behind at work or maybe I'm struggling in some area that that's where I tend to break those barriers and compa- stop compartmentalizing, right? So I, I start to work harder and it carries over into my life with my kids and, I, and I'm not as focused there. And it's like, you're not as present as you need to be. And when you do that self-analysis and you realize it and you try to make change, that's a good thing. But these are pretty tough times. A lot of people are struggling with their value, their worth, their self-confidence. I mean, young people are trying to kickstart their career. People are losing jobs. They're losing loved ones. How can people, in your view, better navigate these life challenges and kind of go at their own self-worth a little bit too to make sure that they feel important enough to be able to, to, to follow through on some of these premises? Yes, self-worth is a, is a complicated topic, as you know, and, and I think that, um, and I'd, I'd love to dive into that a little bit, um, but, but how we can help, how we can drive change is, I, I think we need people in our lives that will tell us the truth. Um, I, I have a story it's in the book, but uh, um, where I was at Madison Square Garden and the Knicks and Rangers were both going through tough seasons. Uh, the New York Liberty, our women's team, uh, was having an okay season. We thought we were gonna have an okay season. And I came home all grouchy one night and we'd been blown out, booed off the court, etc., cetera, uh, which is always fun. And I came in like, you know, full of steam. And, and my wife's like, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, yeah. did you see the game? She's like, yeah, of course I watched the game. I was like, did you see the end? She's like, yeah, of course I watched the end. And I was like, we got booed off the court. It was terrible. And she's like, well, how many games are you going to lose this year? I was like, I don't know, 100? She's like, okay, that's one out of every three nights. Like, this is not going to work for this family, and it's not going to work for me. And I think about that, that story quite a bit because, you know, you might have a tough day at work or you might be losing confidence at work or you might have had you know your boss yell at you or your uh, somebody that you absolutely adore and love and respect quit on you or find a new opportunity and it's a struggle and it's stressful and we have to figure out a way to compartmentalize so that when we're home we can be home and when we're at work we can be at work i had a uh i was at a, a devil's game last week with a good friend and he was telling me a story about his friend who he has a worry tree and so what he does is when he pulls up to his house he walks up to the tree and holds the tree. He said, it's, it's the most amazing thing in the world. And he said, look, my worries float through the tree. I walk inside, I'm good to go. Now, I don't have a worry tree. I want one, but I don't have one. Um, <laughs> but, but I use my ride home. That, that is my, um, I can howl at the moon, I can scream, I can shout, I can kick, I can say things I shouldn't say. And when I get home, 
it, it, it washes off me, just whoosh, whoosh, right off my shoulders. And I walk in and, and, and do my best to be, to be present and be there. Um, we, we, that's our, you know, that, look, we are really blessed to be in this industry. I mean, we're, we're fortunate to do what we do every day. And, um, and sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we, we get in the grind of life or we get on that, um, that treadmill that we can't seem to get off. And, uh, and I think that happened in COVID a lot more uh, to a lot of my, my dear friends that I anticipated is, um, I guess the analogy would be, you know, you're staring at the tree and you're just an inch away from it. And we've got to pull the lens back. And, um, and, and I guess the old adage is see the forest. But for mm-hmm. me, especially when things are going badly in life, and we're, the, we're the, oftentimes the eye of our own hurricane, and everything seems like it's crumbling down, if you just pull back a little bit and you recognize how blessed we are, um, how fortunate we are, and, um, and I think it's a, it's, a good, it's a good time, this COVID is a good time to start. We can talk a little gratitude later, but it's a good time to be thinking about how grateful we should be. No, it's so true. And it's, and it's hard. It's a challenge, I think. A lot of us have faced in what's been a remote work environment, and I'm sure that some of the staff from the Sixers and Devils are coming back face-to-face. But how hard has it been over the last year and a half to stay connected to your staff, to feel like you are still making an impact, both professionally and, and personally? It's got to be a, a challenge in a remote setting. Are there, are there certain techniques that you used in order to stay connected to your staff and people? And does that, does some of those skills that we learned, I feel like some things that I've started doing in a remote world, I'm like, man, I need to take this back to the face-to-face world too. Like, are there certain things that you've picked up on that are just better practices in, in your work environment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I would tell you that I was disappointed about how kind of on my heels I was on occasion during COVID. I mean, and if, if, if you, if, like there were a lot of people who lost their lives, way too many, and, and way too many people suffered from sickness. There are also some incredible lessons, um, and a lot of them based on, on men, for me, mental health. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I saw my children struggle, my wife struggle, I struggled, my friends, my coworkers struggled at different times. And, um, and I found a pretty simple formula um, that I repeated ad nauseum, which a lot of leaders use as a tactic. And it was there, there's, there's, you know, you need to do something for your mind, something for your body, and something for your soul every day. Uh, the body's the easiest. Like, intake the right things and get the heart rate going. 20 minutes a day. Um, for me, it's typically a pickup hoop game at work. That wasn't available, so I bought a Peloton, and I was one of those Peloton loony birds. 45-minute full sweat every morning, no matter what. Cleared my head, started my day right. Um, for the mind, you know, I, I, again, I go back to that treadmill we get on at work, and we're reading, we're listening to podcasts, we're, we're reading, but everything is kind of so baked into our, the business we're in. And my stretch to my team every day was, what are you learning and reading that's outside of this business? And I've got great examples of, of some incredible mentors who taught me that story. And then the soul, which is oftentimes difficult to talk about at work, because nobody wants to talk about religion or faith or soul. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll definitely spare uh, folks in a corporate environment about prayer and scripture and the value of them. But I, I have a, a heartfelt testimony that that's important. But I do feel and talk about quite a bit at work the value of stillness. Um, and with, whether that be through meditation or whether that's through a walk in the woods or some runners get it um, or whether yoga kind of feeds that beast. But we've got to find a some sort of stillness in our lives. And then the fourth piece is just around sleep. And uh, it's a very, very, very hard for a lot of us to sleep. After games, 
I mean, my adrenaline is still rolling well past midnight, and I'm, I'm an early riser in the morning. And so, so we talk a lot about what we can do to best sleep. Sometimes, you know, there's some meditation tools and some other things that we've talked about. And then the last thing is just about gratitude. And uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Eliza, is the best example of this. Um, she's been keeping a gratitude journal for three years, every night. In fact, last night, she had some bug on her bed, and she, like, you know, wanted to sleep in our, in our room. And... Um, uh, so she came in and she's like, you know, it's late. I'm like, can you just go to bed? You know, she's like, well, how am I going to do my gratitude journal? And I was like, good for you. You know? And so yeah. there she is. She's got her little book light and she's filling out 14 things a night, all different every day. And I thought, man, what a great example to fight through it. And then she has this, um, happy thoughts clicker, which is really cute, which she would be, I hope she doesn't hear this cause she'd be really embarrassed. But she has this little <laughs> click, 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 click. And so she does that before she goes to bed. And I, I just think that's a great example. Now, now we might not have time to do a, a 14 um, things to be grateful for every day, but we all have notes in our, on our phones, a little notes app. Like you can't write down three things you're grateful for a day. Um, yeah. And I think the, the notion of being grateful and looking for things to be grateful about will change our perspective. So th those are kind of the five things that I drove pretty aggressively throughout the, the COVID time. Um, in terms of like actual tactical things, like I work with some of the greatest people in the world. I mean, I, I, I've been really fortunate in my, in my career to just have these incredible teams. And so, you know, part of what I have to do is get out of the way. You know, there's such extraordinary work that happens. And um, I, I always think the, the measure of a good organization is when the best ideas come outside meaning the CEO isn't commanding control and the CEO isn't calling all the shots or making all the, the coming up with the great ideas. And, uh, and we have one of those teams. And so, you know, whether it be Laura Price or Jake Reynolds or Chris Heck or Hugh Weber, Elizabeth Berman, I mean, we have this incredible squad. And, um, and whether they're kind of driving, I mean, we had a whole health and wellness platform and program. I mean, so it was, it was pretty incredible to see, you know, we had regular speakers come out. We had incredible forums. We created employee resource groups. I mean, it was a... It was a come one, come all. And all with the notion every day was about like, if somebody's mailbox is filled up or you haven't heard from them and they haven't responded from an email or a text, it's like, they might be, that person might be struggling and it's on you. Yeah. So let's reach out. Like this is time, it's time for high touch in a, in a, in a isolated, like, a, in, like we're in a cocoon way where we couldn't go to the grocery store, store and see anybody. We just put our masks on and kind of ran in and ran out. Um, we were kind of locked in our own homes, um, some immune co compromised homes. Um, so there was definitely a fear about what was going to happen. Like we had to find a way to manufacture high touch. And so we did it a whole bunch of different ways. I think that's genius. I think it's so smart to have that perspective too, because there is a need. There's so many people out there that are hurting in various ways. And sometimes they just need somebody else to reach out and to talk and to listen and to be there. And just to have that perspective of importance for your crew, for your staff, I think is so valuable. Pretty early in my career, I was thrust into a leadership position and I was managing many people, budgets, major decisions, and I failed a lot, right? And I had it in my head that because I had the title, that meant I was a leader. And yet it's kind of ridiculous looking back at it. You know, like you, nobody really gets taught a lot of times how to, to lead, but in your position you do daily, all the time, right? How do you teach people? Can you teach people? How do you lead, teach others to be leaders and effective in that matter? Because you need that. You can't be the only touch point in the organization. You need to have other people who are set up to be leaders. That's a major growth point for people. How do you do that? How do you get that leadership skill, those leadership skills developed in others? 
That's a great question. I, I you know, I'm really fortunate. My my folks were leadership development trainers. So, I mean, I remember. Oh, as, that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I remember as an eight year old, um, collating books for my parents on team building, and I remember being 13, going to see my mom train Xerox sales managers in Colorado Springs, and like, kind of being wide eyed at saying like, who, you know, she's a little five foot three Italian woman, um, just. And at that at that stage in corporate America, it was generally white men in the audience, and she just moved the crowd and made them laugh and made them cry. And so I I, I had a pretty good sense of, uh, or at least an interest in in learning about the kind of the the theater of leadership. And then while most people were you know saying that their hero was Michael Jordan, um, you know mine was Jack Welch. So I was definitely like a different cat growing up. And I, I loved him. I loved the study of what he was doing. I read his books. I was fascinated by, by leadership and management. That being said, um, when I, I was, I often, I found myself in that role as well, where I was promoted uh, potentially too, a little, little too early. And I remember I was managing everybody like I like to be managed. And the way I like to be managed is you tell me what you want me to do and then leave me alone, let me go get it. And the re- what I found mm-hmm. out yeah. um, is that that works really well for 25% of the people. So 25% of the people that worked for me did great. It was the other 75 that I was really intrigued with. You know, it's like, wh- what buttons do I need to push? Like, how do I need to learn? Like, wh- what is important to them? What's motivating to them? Because some people just come to work for a job, and that is wonderful. And some people want to, are really ambitious, and this is just a stepping stone. And other people are motivated by money. And other people are motivated by um pats on the back and recognition yeah. and you almost have to figure out what levers to pull for different people at the right time and so that was my big evolution as a as a manager i will tell you from a leadership end and i separate the two very quickly i'm definitely recognized as a leader you know as a manager i don't think i'm winning manager of the year anytime soon um i i'm you know i, I I'm, I'm kind of listening to myself i'm i'm definitely coming across a little more more softly than than my direct reports might actually tell you that I am. I, I have a reputation for being extremely demanding and setting unreasonably high goals, and they all they hit them, you know. So maybe they're not, um, but I definitely push, I nudge, I drag, I chide, um, and I'm looking for any avenue that I can possibly find to get you to find that other gear and and reach that other level, and and at at certain times of your career, it's the you know, it's the perfect thing you want. So I, I've been fortunate enough because I've worked with people several times over. Um, and that's, that to me is a, at least a recognition that I'm at least doing something right. Um, but I will tell you, it's not easy. Um, and I want to work in a place. I have really high expectations. I want this to be the greatest place to work in the world. And so that's the bar. Okay, and we have not hit that bar. We're not even close to that bar. But we fight, we fight for it. Um, and, and that exchange, that that um, that dialogue in terms of how you get there and who wants to work in an environment where you have the audacity to say you want to create the greatest place to work in the world. It's like when you go to Disney and you see all those people with those big fake smiles when you come in and you're like, why are they so happy they're taking tickets? <laughs> because they self-selected. They self-selected in though, right? Like they yeah. said like, this is what I want. And so I want people here that have a certain gear and that have a certain ambition and that they, they know that they have to be an extraordinary, extraordinary teammate here, and they know they have to work un, you know, unreasonably hard, and they know that they have to be intellectually curious, and that's just the price of admission. And so, so I, I think for, for me, um, 
How you teach it? Great question. Um, we oftentimes um, promote internally, so they, a lot of our um, talent has come through the system. I mean, our chief revenue officer was Chris Hex's assistant at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, our president of the Devils uh, is Katie O'Reilly. Um, and uh, Jake Reynolds started as a director of sales. He's president of the Devils. And so a lot of our best managers and leaders get promoted through the system very quickly. They're both um, on the youngish side of success, for sure. And so we, we've, we definitely promote from within. I, I had a great conversation with a young man the other day. We have these um, roundtables where I meet with two or three groups of 10 people a week. And it's just an hour, and it's, hey, let's talk about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, this young man asked me a question. I thought it was, you know, it's great. And I'm a very accessible person, so people feel comfortable. Um, and so he said, well, like, do you believe in promoting from within? I was like, absolutely, of course. He said, well, why did you post this job? I, of course, I didn't know what job it was. I, I, you know, I have no idea. And I said, you know, so I started asking him questions. He said, well, it's for this X job. And I said, okay, well, what are you doing to go get this job? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, have you, have you gone to the hiring manager and told, told, it was her, told her you're interested? No, I haven't. I said, okay, all right. Um, have you written up a plan for, for the group? Like what you would do if you had that job? No, I, no, I haven't done that. Okay, do you have any ideas on how you would structure this group if it were yours? Well, I have them. I was like, can you put them on paper? I, I haven't yet, but I, that's a probably a good idea. I said, okay, have you thought about the hiring manager and who might influence that hiring manager? No. So you haven't talked to anybody who even influences the hiring manager? No. I said, okay, at some point, you have to be accountable for your career. Mm-hmm. And you have to look yourself in the mirror. And I, I find young people, I, I was telling them, like, you always got, it's quick to point one finger out. When you point that one finger out, you got these three pointing back at you. And so I just want to make sure that you're in control of your destiny. And that does not mean you're going to get, a, to get the job. That has no insurance. But at least it gets you to pl- up to bat. Right. And so, and so we, we, I think we, you know, I, I love this young generation of talent. Love, 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 love. I've never mm-hmm. had more fun than working with millennials and Gen Zers. Um, I think I'm one at heart. I'm certainly not one by age. But by heart, <laughs> you and me I both. Am. Yeah, <laughs> but I love them. I, I love how hard they work. I love how ambitious yeah. they are. I love how connected and smart they are. I love how creative. they understand brands yep. and creative and yep. you know it's just you know and the world comes very naturally. And there's a there's a social contract they have. They effectively are, are asking you. I'll give that, and for that, I want to believe in something better than the mundane job I have. So, yeah. what are you really about, Mr. CEO? What are you about? Like, what does this company matter? Like, so you know. We have an incredible like social engagement. So we talk about changing the world and leaving the world better than we have it, better than we found it. They want to know like Mr. Big Time CEO, okay, buddy, can I email you? Will you email me back? Are we good? Mm-hmm. What's the budget look like? Like how transparent <laughs> are you willing to be? You know, and but yeah. that's the contract, and I love that contract. Uh, I, I you know I even love that they want to be promoted every other week. I I'm I'm okay with that because that's how I was when I was young. Right. And, um, and, and so, you know, that for, for me, that has stretched me as an executive just to figure out, okay, what does communication look like? Because it used to be, hey, you report, you know, you can get your direct reports in a room a couple days a week, which I do. And then they'll get to their direct reports and they'll get, that's not how it works yeah. anymore. No. Like there's all these kind of social networks and we, we have to be very, very, very much more engaged and present throughout the organization or, um, or our turnover will jump through the moon. It's true. It's true. And retention is so important. 
So every top level CEO or entrepreneur that I've interviewed as part of this show or part of my other parts of my career, I feel like they have this unique ability to see why things should work rather than being you know, tied up in self-doubt. And that frees them up in a way to go at things fearlessly. And it's something I admire. I think so many of us look at the idea of creation or the idea of launching a new product and we get paralyzed by our own fear of, well, what could go wrong rather than what could go right. I always listen to like Bill Belichick with the Patriots always saying like, tell me what somebody can do rather than what they can't do. Same kind of concept. Why don't more of us embody this attitude? Why is this such a hard thing to unlock this self-trust and belief? And, and why is that such a characteristic of, of CEOs and entrepreneurs? What do you think? You know, I'm not sure why that's the case. I, I know that um, we want to do hard things, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I think in our organization, we like to be first, we like to be very innovative, and we like to be different. Once again, you can't have those things and those characteristics unless it's okay to fail, and it's okay yeah. to debate, and it's okay to chip and fall. And you, you just can't have them both, because, you know, uh, Thomas Edison, how many times did he fail creating a light bulb? It's like 2,500 times. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I think that's kind of embodies how we look at the world here. Um, is, it, is it okay? Um, yes, it's okay to fail. Do we do post-morts? Of course we do. Do, yeah. we, do we blame people? No, we don't. Do we focus on process? Yes, we do. So I, I think it is definitely a mindset. It's one that I've had. Um, when I was 22, I remember a really smart guy telling me that all great CEOs have failed, all great CEOs have been fired, all great CEOs have run a company to the ground. Don't worry, just keep going. And I was just like, yeah, okay, not me. And I look forward and, and I failed at just about every aspect of my life, personally and professionally at one time. And so I have run a company into the ground. I have been fired, you know, and I've had all kinds of struggles um, personally. And, and I think that's okay. You know, I think because those are your, those are your great learning moments. That's what my book, Be Where Your Feet Are, is. It's not yeah. a victory lap. You read it. It's not me like, you know, with a trophy and a crown saying, you know, patting myself on the back, taking another lap around the, the field. This is about like, oh, here's where I struggled. And here's what I learned. And here's what it means to me going forward. And here's what it mean, might mean to you. And I've had like incredible people in my life and they all have had the same experience. So, so that veneer, that... The Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, you know, everything is awesome video is awesome. Mm -hmm. I post I post on social media. I love it. I, and I love seeing my <laughs> friends post. Yeah. It's just it sometimes gives us a sense that everything is perfect and, and it just isn't. And that's okay because life isn't yeah. perfect. Life is messy and things go wrong and we learn and we grow and we find people in our lives who love us and and root for us and trust us and pick us up. And then we go live to fight another day. And, and I think there's something really special about that. You talked a little bit there about some of your previous struggles in business and you know, being fired or losing investors' money or you know, startup failures, whatever it may be. At the time, I'm sure those things, as they were happening, felt insurmountable to you. Now you can look back with perspective. But there are people that are living it right now. What would you tell them? What have you learned from some of those processes that you've been through that may help people that are in that insurmountable feeling right now? Yeah, it's something I tell my daughter. I've told my daughter quite a bit. It's just everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, I, everything is going to be okay. And she'd be like, what's going to be okay? And I'm like, everything. That's the great everything. thing about life. You just take a step back, get out of the eye of the storm, get somebody, get some perspective, because that's always helpful. 
get some authentic feedback, mm-hmm. take a breath, get yourself mentally healthy, go back to the mind, body, soul, sleep, gratitude model, go back to that model, and then, and then let's reset and come up with a plan. Um, what happens in life now, in particular, um, with those of us who have a lot spinning around our heads, is that we feel overwhelmed because we have so much content coming to us, whether that's interaction with people or media or thoughts for the future and projects we're working on. And it's it's and if one of them is going south, we feel completely overwhelmed. And so what I found is like a really simple tactic is just to write down the things, understand like how you prioritize them, and then you got to ask yourself a really simple question: Is there something I can do about it? Mm-hmm. And if there is, do it. If there's not, take it off your worry list because it's not going to matter. Yeah. Um, if you're worried about it raining tomorrow, like that's not a great use of energy or time. If you're yeah. worried about the devil's winning tonight, that is not a great use of energy or a good use of time. The boys will be on the ice and they're going to play hard. And let's hope the, the good things happen. Mm-hmm. But, um, but we have to spend a lot of time where we can have the biggest impact. But I, I, um, I would tell you, like, I, I worry. I worry about people today. I think it's hard. I think the isolation's been hard. I think the social media addiction is causing all kinds of mental health mm-hmm. issues, in particular for teens. And I think we've got to take care of ourselves better. And we have to take care of each other. You know, I have this saying at work that I say quite a bit. It's take care of yourself. Once you take care of yourself and you're mind, body, soul, you're physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually healthy, then you can take care of your family. Okay? Once you take care of your family, then you can do your job. It doesn't mm-hmm. work any other way. Because if you go to try to do your job without taking care of the first two, it's not going to go well. And so we've got to spend more time taking care of ourselves. In your book... And in this conversation, you've mentioned the need for authentic feedback a couple times. When you look back and you think through your mentors who may have given you authentic feedback, who were they and what did they tell you that has kind of stuck with you to this day? How did mentors and, and people in your life affect you? Man, I've been really blessed. I mean, my, my, the biggest one's probably my wife, Lisa, but um, I will say... She does sound pretty awesome from the way you've oh, talked man, about she, her. She's, she's, she's an amazing woman. <laughs> amazing woman. very strong very tough i like how she's straightforward with you too and says like i'm oh, not gonna work i like that it sounds like my wife around. who's from philly by the way so I, maybe there's a theme here yeah yeah there might be <laughs> um so I, I i think um seth berger was one who gave me great feedback he was the founder of and one the number two basketball sneaker company in the world at the time we sold the company and now he runs our innovation lab um we started hoops tv together and when it failed i didn't really i I didn't really understand why or how or what my role is, and he did. And his focus was on the WMI, what's most important. You've got to figure out high performers spend 65 or more percent of their time on the three things that matter most. And I was like, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know? And so when you get in these jobs, you talked about being a manager for the first time, and I, I you know, get these jobs, and you get a fancy title, and you think, oh, now I have the office. Now everything's going to be easy. Now I get this. Now, I... No, 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 mm-hmm. no. You got to figure out what drives the business, what matters most, and spend your time on it and not get sucked into everything else. And the everything else will suck your time up. So yeah. he's one. Um, David Stern was another one um, just because he was just such an incredible, intellectually curious learner. And I would travel with him. I got privilege of travel with him. God rest his soul. He's passed away. But yeah. he would, you know, it's old school. So he would stack of papers. Stat, and he would be reading life sciences and geopolitical stuff, and I love that. Yeah. Um, Adam Silver, like about events, you know, when I first um, started with Team Bo and worked for Dr. Bill Sutton, I know he's been on your podcast, mm-hmm. and we, we worked 
arm in arm. And we had a couple events that were not world class. And Adam, he's the commissioner now, and you know, I think the greatest commissioner any sport's ever seen. Um, but but I, I think he's got a producer's heart. So he understood what what world class looked like a lot mm -hmm. a lot quicker than we did. And so. And and how they deliver, I, I don't I, I don't really get caught up in the in the how, you know David's style was uh, you know really aggressive, Seth's is much more nurturing, Adams is more direct, you know I don't really I mean I, again I'm I, maybe it's my age or maybe I've just seen a lot or experienced a lot, so the how doesn't matter I'm so interested in the what and the why, and and the how you know um, and so I think we get you know. I would just encourage you, if you're delivering feedback to somebody, try to do it in a way that they can hear it, because you know, you'll know the people that, that are delivering it, and, and try to deliver it in a way that would be most effective to you if you were hearing it. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but it, it's nice to have people in your life who love you enough and care about you enough to tell you the truth and give you feedback on how you can be more effective. I mean, what better gift is that? You mentioned the Innovation Lab, which I think is fascinating. Let's talk about it from almost a, a traits side. Is it more important than ever right now during this challenging time of the sports industry to embody that spirit of innovation, just that term almost, that like, that thought process? You know, it's not for everybody. Uh, it is okay. for us. Um, yeah. But I think the way I think about the world now is that we get this incredible opportunity, almost like a do-over or a reset that you never get in life. And so for us, the, the language we use is we use language like, what does our reboot look like? Or what is the new normal gonna look like? How can we impact how we look tomorrow? So I think if that's the type of organization you are and that's the mission or vision you have, of course, it's, by the way, it's more fun that way. But yeah. other, other, other um, organizations that I'm very familiar with, some have a follower mentality and there's nothing wrong with being second. You know what's, you know what's good about being second? It's safer, you know? Yeah. You can improve on what you just saw, less risk, less PR mm -hmm. implications. So, so there, there's value in that. It's, it's not as fun for me. You know, I, I like being up front. You know, the view, the view changes quite a bit. It's kind of fun. Um, but there's, there's peril up there too. So I, I like it. Um, I think there's so much opportunity in the world right now. It's almost like can make your head spin because everything is changing and, and with change comes opportunity. In that vein of innovation, is there something happening in the sports industry right now that has your industry has as you peaked, has you like really intrigued and interested as we look towards the future that like you're like okay that right there that's going to be cool and that's worth yeah. spending some time on. I mean, there's so much stuff happening in this business right yeah. now. I mean, I mean, just thinking about like bringing people back for concerts, I'm pretty excited about. Yeah. Um, NFTs are to me like I, I mean I'm you know I, I talked about like learning something. I've kind of been fascinated by blockchain. I think. Blockchain and 5G are going to change the world as we know it. And so to see that tech um, introduced into our space in, in forms of NFTs is, is really compelling and interesting to me. Um, I mean, look, there's so much incredible tech coming out. I mean, yeah. I, I, through our innovation lab, and we have a venture fund as well. And so I get to sit at the forefront, and I'm on the investment committee. We have incredible managers. Um, but... Um, but Chip and Brad run our venture fund. So, I mean, just like, what a, I'm talking about a gift. It's like, especially for, I'm a bit of a tech nerd. So, so to be able to, um, to, to kind of experience the technology, we have this credible investment in Homecourt, for example. It's this artificial intelligence training app. 
And um, and if you came on a Thursday at my house around nine o'clock, you'd he- in our kitchen, you'd hear that ball bouncing, and it's pretty funny. Like it's funny, like to to use the tech. Um, there's a great um, uh, hydration um, mix called Hydrant um, in our in- coming out of our innovation lab, which I had I have every every morning, and I swear that will help if you get in your COVID shot to drink Hydrant before. Okay, I did it and it worked. I didn't have any symptoms. Anyway. I, I'm I into it. it <laughs> Trust yeah, me, I'm totally into it. And, and so, so Hydra came to us. They were doing five thousand dollars a month when they came to us, and right now they're in Walmart. And so, yeah. it's just fun to see new tech, incredible um, entrepreneurs, um, see like how it goes through our, our ecosystem and infrastructure, and see these companies just emerge to be um, significant uh, power players in the world. It's pretty fun. It is. It's got to be really, I mean, to see something go from small to big and just see that growth cycle has got to be so energizing. Pivoting a little bit, I've noticed a trend in our industry lately that as I've interviewed people who would maybe traditionally have a title of HR or VP of HR, senior VP of HR, whatever, you're seeing a lot more of titles that are shifting a little bit and they're calling it people and culture or something along that lines. Because it feels to me like at least anecdotally, corporate culture is having a bit of a moment, right? People are focusing on it more and that entails a lot. How important has that been for you throughout your career to establish and build a strong culture inside the building? And what does that look like through your eyes? How does that happen, culture? Yeah, so we, we define culture as um, what you celebrate and what you tolerate and, oh, how like you get things, and how you get things done. So the first part came from Hugh Weber. The second part came from a person a lot smarter than I am. So, um, but that's how we, so, so that's how we look at it. So if you think about what you celebrate, what you tolerate, that's relatively easy. And then how things get done is the actual like, the secret sauce. Um, so we have a pretty good beat on on those three things and spend quite a bit of time doing it. You know, the reality is, is we have this incredible group of talented people and they can work anywhere they want in the world. Um, and it would be so easy if I could just come into a company, wave my magic, magic wand, sprinkle my little pixie dust everywhere and say, let's, let's, this is going to be a great culture. And right. What I've, le- what I've learned over time is that you know, you have to hire for talent character, for sure. Maybe not necessarily in that order. And then my job is to set the, the tone, reinforce it's important, and then make sure that the next woman in knows that it's her job to drive the culture. And so it's really next woman up or next man up um, yeah. to try to figure out, like, what it looks like and what it feels like. And we do a lot of things around the edges. Um, you know, you know, we spend a lot of time on what we call onboarding the first three weeks of mm-hmm. someone's work. and. We do a ton of leadership development. Our HR team, Elizabeth Berman, runs world-class team. They do incredible programming. But at the end of the day, people leave a company because they don't. They don't. They want a new manager, a new supervisor. That's just. Those are just the facts. That's the number one reason. Mm-hmm. And so we do a, a lot of leadership development. We do a lot of personal development, um, and we spend quite a bit of time trying to figure out how we can make this place better. So I. I, I love it. I mean, I. I mean, since. My earliest days, I was taking notes on what I didn't want because sports um, and entertainment has been notorious in terms of culture. Yeah. And so I, I learned as much um, from what I didn't want as much as what, from what I did want. And I, I would say when I was younger, if, I'm ever ha- if I ever have a chance to make a difference, I'm going to make a difference. And um, unfortunately, the last few places I've been, I've, I've had a chance to, to be able to be part of, of setting the strategy for the culture. But the culture is not about the boss. Never, never is, never has I been. I agree. I agree. No, I think you're spot on. 
So a major factor, I believe, in developing a positive culture is diversity in hiring. Um, there's a fear that businesses right now, because of our current temperature, are quota hunting. And, or as to put it, as our mutual friend, Dr. Bill Sutton said, trying to look good for the company picture. And I wonder, how do you set the tone? Because like you said, your role, you set that tone. How do you set the tone for Harris Blitzer that diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't a momentary buzzword, it's not superficial, that this is the way we operate? How do you do that? Well, the th first three last three places I've worked um, have been generally uh, white male dominated when I got there and generally looked very different when I left. So, um, so I, I believe wholeheartedly that diversity is a sustainable competitive advantage. So mm -hmm. that, that's in my soul, I believe it. So, you know, when I got here eight years ago, we had one woman who was a vice president and we had one person of color who was a director. And as I look today, we have 18 women who are vice presidents or, or over, including 13 SVPs, including our COO, our general manager of our building, our two heads of marketing, our chief revenue officer, our head of human resources, blah, blah, head of operations. You can go on and on forever. I mean, this yeah. company is run by women. And from a diversity end, we're 34% people of color. And so you have now, no, it's no longer that white men are even the majority here, which is a pretty awesome change. Mm -hmm. And so I have, you know, I have, and, I, and I'm, I'm not sure what spurred that for me other than just the Machiavellian end of, I think we're a better company that way. Now, it's become en vogue and it's become like kind of the thing to do. And as I've talked to, to my friends and peers and friends all over the world, and as, as they've felt pressure to, to build a more diverse staff, I, I, what I said to them was like, buckle up, you know, because they're like, hey, should I hire a chief diversity officer? I was like, yes, you should. Mm -hmm. And I said, and you know, and like, and they're all there's fear about being in the kind of the, you know whitest companies in the world list or whitest companies in America list and or most male dominated companies list or whatever they are the ones you don't want to be on, and and what I what I'll, I'll say to everybody is like it's a five year program, you know think I mean you know and you have to commit and you have to put real processes in place and our process was really simple is half of of the final candidates um, had to be diverse so that was mm -hmm. our process from my day one. And so, and, and the reality is if you step back and people don't want to hear this and they don't want to talk about it and it makes them uncomfortable and it shouldn't, is we're generally more comfortable with people who look like we do. We look in the mirror, look at your neighborhood, you know, um, look at your friend set, you know, and it doesn't mean that, you know, people are uncomfortable or it's just, we're just, that's just the way it works. And so we have to work a little bit harder to put ourselves um, in a diverse environment. And if we're hiring quicker, that means we're hiring from our network. And just by the very nature of what I just said, our networks generally look like us. And what mm -hmm. happens if you're running a company is you're going to hit that point where you have enough diverse senior people, executives, and then they're hiring people who look like them. And it's like, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful transition. And, and all the companies have, have made that transition, at least the last three I've been on, which have been really fun to see. Um, but you, 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 as an executive, if you're doing this for a quota number or quota hunting or whatever you said, uh, that's you, you're you're mis you're misunderstanding the opportunity, um, because this world is is a changing, as they say, and it's very complex, and we need our our companies to very much mirror the world, so we can understand um, dynamics, trends, changes. Uh, yeah. a lot quicker than we are. 
It's so true. And I think to those companies that are asking, should we hire a chief diversity officer? It's like, yes, but also empower them. Give them the ability yes, to make and. decisions. Yeah. Give them the power to make change. Like, don't just hire the role. Let them do their thing. You know, give them the freedom and the, and the connectivity to the entire industry to be a decision maker. I think that's important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. But it's more than that. It's like your chief diversity officer isn't telling your vice president of sales who to hire. It's like, that's yeah. your job. Yeah. You run the company. You, you have to set the tone. And, and, and you'll get every excuse in the book. And you just say, like, hey, you can hire whoever you want. Just make sure half those final candidates are diverse. That's it. Yeah. Let's go. I think um, it's a great and, process. And, yeah. And then, you know, and then you have to reinforce. And there, there are some sp- positions that people aren't going to want to hear this either. I'm going to tell them um, is that you need a diverse candidate for this role. And you as a CEO have to be strong enough to say it. And you have to believe that's a competitive advantage because it is. Yeah, it's true. Scott, this has been an amazing conversation. I cannot endorse your book enough. I've enjoyed reading it. Be Where Your Feet Are, Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and Thriving. We'll finish up with this. Our audience tends to be sports-enthused, career-minded people. They're trying to break in. They're trying to get promoted. They're trying to get into the industry, grow, and improve. You've hired and developed staff. You've been surrounded by some of the best people in the industry. Above you, below you, around you, you've seen it all. What's that personality pattern that you notice that is aligned with success in the sports industry? Are there certain things that just you see it in people and you know like they've got that it factor? Is there something that stands out to you as a pattern of those people that have been most successful that you've been surrounded by in your career? Sure. I mean, my favorite group that I've ever worked with was when I was at the NBA where you had Dr. Bill Sutton, um, Chris Granger, who's running Illich, Tigers, and Red Wings in their whole music property. Chris Heck, who's our president at the Sixers. Tom Glick, who's president of the Carolina Panthers. Amy Brooks, who's president of the NBA. Dan Reed, who's president of uh, sports entertainment at Facebook. I'm, I'm missing names. That's, pretty, that's like, a pretty good group. That's one group. Yeah, that's a pretty good so, group. So I've been, I've been pretty fortunate. Like I've, I've been able to surround myself with some of the most incredibly talented people. Donna Daniels, who's our GM of our building, was there too. So crazy, crazy talented group. And I think um, one thing is just they're able, they want they're okay working unreasonably hard. They um, I just haven't found success outside of just raw work. Like, are you willing to put the work in? And the second thing I talked about a little bit before is intellectual curiosity, and that's just like, are they interested? Like, everyone wants to be interesting. Try being interested. Once you're interested, you'll be plenty interesting. But you need to be fall in love with learning. And hopefully you have that, and that's ingrained in you. Um, but when's the last time you listened to a podcast that wasn't about your business, or read an article, or entertained something that you just thought would, would I mean, what? why would I study blockchain? It just happened to come into our business. Um, you know, so it, it's just like we have to learn, be, be a learner. And the third thing is probably most important, and that's to be an extraordinary teammate. Um, when you're young in your career, you can jump over people, you can hit them when they're down, you can step on their heads, you can make them look bad, and then you wake up someday and you're pretty lonely. You know? Or you can be an extraordinary teammate and you can work with people your whole career and you wake up one day and you're like, holy mackerel, I got 200 friends running sports and entertainment right now, running the industry. And you're like, it's not an accident. It's people that choose to be, that that is in their DNA because they... You know, I, and, and if you want to be, if you, if you don't have it in your heart and you just want to be Machiavellian, be Machiavellian. It will help you. You will be a better executive um, if you take care of people um, and you celebrate people. 
and you root for them and you help them and you help them on their careers and you help them in their lives because because it's it's the right thing to do it will help you if and if you wanted if if you're not machiavellian and you just say like i just want to have more fun and i want more satisfaction and i want to be part of an extraordinary team you should do it too but that that's i think that's the key one more than anything else Scott, amazing stuff. Thank you so much for coming on. All the success in the world with the book. It's a fantastic read. It's good for anybody, young people. Great Father's Day gift. I think it would be amazing for anybody to really read and digest and kind of give themselves a little additional perspective and really challenge yourself to think your way through it and, and put it in your own life, in your own terms. Everybody can make a lot of positive changes out of reading it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for telling us more about your life, your purpose, everything you're up to, and, and all the reasons that the book is going to make a big splash. Thank you for coming on. Hey, you're incredible. Continue success and keep doing your thing. I hope all of you could appreciate how insightful and authentic Scott was during that conversation. He and I talked right afterwards and he said, and I wish I hadn't stopped recording, but he did say that was the most funny it had in an interview and he really enjoyed the process. So um, I felt the same way. I really was blown away by all he had to share and it was authentic. And it really meant a lot to have the conversation. Here's a guy running two major sports franchises, arenas, innovation labs, incredible things happening all around him. And he took the time to, to really share his insight and belief structure, which is pretty cool. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. It's always a thrill to have you here listening. So please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Continue to tune in as we continue to have amazing guests. Let's get back to work. <laughs>